Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Welcome back for another episode of Opto Sessions with me, Hayden Brain. Today I'm talking to ETF aficionado Deborah Fur, founder of ETF GI, the dominant player in global ETF research. Deborah took time out of her busy schedule, typically a prolific globetrotter, but grounded at home by the coronavirus, to give us exclusive insight into an industry that now commands a colossus six trillion valuation, worth just eight billion as recently as 1997. We discuss how Deborah's helped to pioneer and trailblaze on behalf of these transparent, accessible products. Why an industry traditionally obsessed by fees and sky-high compensation is now turning their minds to what was once considered a quirky alternative investment, and which new innovative products we should keep an eye on, particularly in the active and thematic segments. If you're invested in or trading ETFs, this isn't a conversation you want to miss. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome, Deborah. Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I wondered how you've sort of fared over the past couple of months. Has, has the transition to working from home been smooth? Yeah, so thank you for having me on. Um, I think in general, it has been smooth. Um, it's been a big change for me, though, personally, in that typically I am traveling all over the place, um, like somewhere every week. So the fact that I've been now at home for the past four months seems in some ways surprising. In some ways, the time has gone by slowly, in other ways, quickly. So I think I've been used to the idea of not working in the office, given the amount of travel I've done previously. I do have a team of people who work for my firm and do all the research. And so it has required me to uh, move all of them to homes. Um, Some have even decided to go home as in to their home in Greece. So we have people working in various jurisdictions uh, around the world right now. And um, so have moved to interacting with them using uh, team calls on Zoom. And uh, yeah, and, you know, working through all of the different nuances of talking to clients, prospects, and also, uh, I'm one of the board members of founders of Women in ETFs, and so having virtual meetings, virtual webinars, uh, so really learning how to do all these things and still learning how to do them better than I was before. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I suppose the firm that you referenced there is uh, ETFGI, which uh, I've got a couple of questions on later. Um, so we will certainly uh, dig into kind of your work there. But first of all, I just wanted to talk about sort of indexing and ETFs more broadly i mean you're you're passionate about that space and it it seems the wider market shares that passion we've seen a near uninterrupted upward trend in etf inflows for for the past two decades or so i mean in a nutshell why do you think we've seen such colossus growth in this space well i think there's a number of reasons um one would be that many investors whether they're retail financial advisors or professional institutional investors have found that it is very challenging to find active mutual funds that are beating their benchmarks or delivering that alpha as opposed to the market returns that people um, bought them expecting to receive. And so typically seven out of 10 active funds are not beating their benchmark um, in any given year. And if you look over a three and five year basis, the percentage gets even worse. So if you were to look at investing in the US market, 
which many investors around the world do, you would see that last year, 70% of active funds underperformed the S&P 500. And on a three and five year basis, that percentage actually uh, decreases in terms of uh, the benchmark and index funds are doing better than active managers. So that would be one reason. I think the other is that many investors are trying to invest in more asset classes and markets and realize that they can often generate alpha through asset allocation as opposed to security or mutual fund selection. So being able to overweight or underweight a country, a sector, a region allows you potentially to generate your own alpha. And then I think the other would be that the products and innovation there are allowing people to invest in themes and ESG, which maybe have not been available in other wrappers as quickly as we have seen in the ETF industry. So I think for many, it's just become a better vehicle. And that's because when you think about ETFs, exchange traded funds, they are regulated as funds. So it's a mutual fund wrapper with the added benefit of being listed and traded on exchange. So you can buy or sell anytime during the trading day. They are transparent, they are cost efficient, and they are also adding diversification for many investors. So simple um, products that allow all types of investors to gain access to a broad toolbox. And they really are the only democratic investment product that I'm aware of. And by that, I mean all types of investors, whether it's pension funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, financial advisors, and then retail have access to the same toolbox of products at the same annual cost, which is very low. Uh, right now, on average, it would be 23 basis points annually. And the minimum investment size is very small, where historically you would see institutions have a very large toolbox, low fees, and high minimum investment sizes. And retail investors tend to have a small toolbox with higher fees and smaller minimum investment sizes. So I think uh, these benefits of the ETF wrapper and the products are some of the reasons that we've seen very significant growth in the use of them across asset classes and around the world. Today, they're available in 58 countries, traded on 71 exchanges, and the assets at the end of last month were 6.11 trillion US dollars. Yeah, wow. And I was actually going to cover the benefits uh, kind of later on in the interview, but I think it's a, an opportune moment to cover them now. Uh, obviously, some of our listeners will be aware of, of the, the basic benefits that ETFs give us. But you, you mentioned transparency there. Um, you know, why, why now do you think uh, people are demanding more transparency from their investment products? Well, I think part of it is as we look at ESG and we look at thematic investing, and let's start maybe with thematic, there have been a number of changes to the classifications of the companies that are in different sectors or industries. And when people think about themes, so if I want to invest in disruptive technology, or I want to invest in solar energy, or even themes around diversity, often I would want to know what companies are in that basket that the mutual fund or an ETF is investing in. And ETFs providing this daily transparency, at least when they're index-based, allows people to see whether 
what they think should be in a basket is actually there in terms of the investments that the ETF is making. Um, I think when we think about ESG, it's even more important because for many, ESG is a very personal thing. And so some people might want to not invest in certain types of companies. So whether it's you know fossil fuels or whether it's tobacco or whatever, you would want to know are the companies in that basket or are they investing in the best in class within a category? So I think given the different ways that indices can be created, some will look at best in class, others will weed out entire um, sectors or types of companies. So I think being able to look through what's in an ETF is very important for many investors. Yeah, definitely. And you met, you mentioned costs uh, a little earlier on in your answer as well. I mean, obviously, the entry points for ETFs are, are far lower on the whole than mutual funds, for example. I mean, I imagine a lack of portfolio management fees is central to that. But where do you see ETF fees headed? I mean, can, can they go lower still? Well, I think in general, um, the fees a little bit depend on the costs that the ETF incurs. So there's going to be index licensing fees, there's going to be legal fees, admin fees. And so you need to look at those costs. In general, I think that we've seen a real focus on fees, especially for plain vanilla products. And so when you look at the ETF industry today, you would see that about $2 trillion worth of assets are sitting in ETFs that have expense ratios between zero and 10 basis points. And there's another like one and a half trillion dollars sitting in ETFs that have fees between 10 and 20 basis points. So for many investors, cost is an important component of why they use ETFs and how they think about which ETFs they might use. I would caution them that it's not the only component to look at, but clearly I think that fees in general have been important factor because we know if investors in general invest in lower cost products over the long term they will get better performance from their investments yeah yeah well i definitely agree with that one key uh, benefit that we haven't mentioned is uh, liquidity and i guess that speaks to the majority of etfs out there Um, and here i guess i'm talking about the ability to enter and exit a trade quickly Amid the market uncertainty that we've seen over the past couple of months, is that flexibility crucial to, to any outperformance that a, that a trader or investor is going to get? Well, so I think liquidity is very important and ETFs benefit from two forms. You have secondary trading where ETFs trade like any other security. And then you have what we call primary, which is that unique creation redemption process. So when there's a large order and large would typically be when the trade is more than 20% of the typical average daily volume, that's when an authorized participant or broker that is allowed to legally do this will go and trade that underlying basket in increments of 50,000 typically, send it to the custodian and the ETF gets bigger. Or conversely, they would take out that basket of securities um, from the custodian. So liquidity really is how liquid is the underlying in most cases. Um, Some days you would see more liquidity in the um, secondary trading than you might see in the underlying, but that's not typical. So I think when you think about the liquidity, I think the other thing would be in terms of outperformance, um, 
for many investors, the outperformance doesn't come from trying to time the market or being a market timer. It really comes from being low cost and being fully invested in many cases would be your best way forward. Um, because I think for many, it's hard to know when is the right time to sell and when is the right time to go back in, right? And when you start to try to do this, you can find that you end up paying both commission to go in and out, but you also may not go in and out at the right time. So I think for many investors, staying fully invested has been a good way to think about investing and maybe to rebalance their portfolio back to whatever asset allocation mix they feel is appropriate for them based on how much money they want to have in fixed income versus equities versus maybe even commodities. And then within that, how much they want to have to different types of securities within those buckets. Um, so many people will just do a quarterly, semi-annual annual rebalance to their ideal model portfolio weights. Other people might decide that uh, they enjoy trading more and think that they can add value by doing this. When you look at the news more recently with many of us being locked at home, people have paid a lot more attention, I think, to ETFs because unlike many years ago in the ETF industry now globally is 30 years old, in Europe it's 20 years old, um, if you go back to the early days, ETFs weren't mentioned very often in the press or on TV. I've watched a number of news shows during lockdown, and the number of times the journalists on TV will reference what a sector did or a country did, they're often talking about specific ETFs and tickers. And I think for many investors, um, especially in the U.S., where most of the retail platforms no longer charge commission to buy or sell, they are more actively using ETFs to invest or trade. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that trend. ETFs being mentioned more uh, widely in the in the media. I mean, we cover obviously stock market news on Opto, but uh, we've we've received sort of a tremendous appetite for ETF news and content even over the past year or so, and we've seen an uptick in that since uh, our inception, really. And that was only sort of a year and a half, two years ago. And there's some really interesting points there that I want to come back to. But if we could just sort of circle back to your background and where it all began for you, where, where does your interest in finance and research come from? So I originally worked uh, while I was at university for a small consulting firm in uh, the States. And uh, I worked with the founder of that company. It actually still exists called Greenwich Associates. The person who founded the company actually did one of the first studies that I found, which was looking at the performance of active funds versus the S&P 500 index. And that was written up in the Financial Analyst Journal. And so I would have to say that his interest in this area, and he's written many books, uh, his name's Charlie Ellis, started, I think, my interest in this area. And um, the work that they did at that time and still do is really focused around very much on investments and rating and ranking qualitatively different firms. So I think from there, I decided to get my MBA. I decided I wanted to work overseas. I, uh, after graduation, moved to London, was working with a different consulting firm at that time, and really wanted to work for Morgan Stanley and was lucky I had an offer 
to join them and join them as the director of marketing for a product called Opals and for ETFs. And that was 1997. At the time, there were only 21 ETFs and $8 billion invested. And Morgan Stanley had helped to create a set of products called WEBS, World Equity Benchmark Shares, which provided exposure to 17 different MSCI benchmarks, MSCI, Barclays Global Investors, and Morgan Stanley in the Institutional Equity Division worked together to create these products. Barclays Global Investors, as many of your uh, listeners will probably know, was acquired by BlackRock. And so the WEBS products were rebranded to iShares when Barclays Global Investors decided they wanted to have a family of ETFs and not just international products. So um, have been involved with ETFs from pretty early on, not the very beginning, because I mentioned it's now 30 years old. And I stayed at Morgan Stanley having various roles in sales, marketing, product development, uh, writing research until Spitzer came along in the U.S. when the research I was writing became market commentary. And uh, 2007, the fixed income industry, sorry, the fixed income segment of Morgan Stanley took over the equity division and uh, cut about half of the division. So I left Morgan Stanley as a managing director after 11 years in 2008, joined Barclays Global Investors September 15, 2008, the day Lehman filed for bankruptcy to create industry research and implementation strategy as a managing director with my team mm. and um, spent about three years there. After BlackRock bought Barclays Global Investors, I decided I really wanted to go back to the sell side, uh, enjoyed dealing with the clients and being able to come up with solutions and um, had an offer to become the global head of Delta One Strategy at an investment bank, accepted that offer, and that investment bank reorganized a couple weeks later, and I realized they weren't going to let me speak to the press, and it probably wasn't the best place for me to go to next. So over the summer, we put together the business plan for ETFGI, and um, when my gardening leave was over at the end of October, it turned out that they weren't going to have global Delta One strategies, so it actually made it easy for me to just launch ETFGI. And we've been going now for eight and a half years, and we provide independent research and consulting services and do events. It's paid for subscription research, so our clients are investors, ETF issuers, the trading firms, index providers, exchanges, some regulators, trade associations, et cetera, around the world. I'm also one of the founders of Women in ETFs, which is a nonprofit in the U.S. and a limited liability company here in uh, Europe as we EMEA and board member of the two entities. Um, so I've been involved with that as a way to give back to the industry and also to encourage diversity and help younger women enter the industry, grow their careers and have a good career in the uh, industry. Yeah, I mean, that's all fascinating. I mean, you've got incredible recall for what's already been a uh, an, an impressive career uh, to date. Um, I wanted to take you back. Uh, you mentioned Charlie Ellis, and um, he he wrote a, a number of books. Winning the Losers Game, obviously, uh, being one of his more famous uh, pieces. And uh, he he was one of the first, at least from my understanding, to posit the idea that professional traders 
have a very hard time beating the benchmark. I just wonder to what extent that was a sort of formative experience. Was that where you truly um, kind of understood this idea that uh, indexing and ETFs later could actually challenge the the accepted way of doing things, i.e. stock picking and active uh, trading and investment? It definitely planted the seed that that made a lot of sense. And um, clearly back in the US, I uh, had a 401k plan and invested in index products um, and the money still sits there. So I'm not a day trader myself. I think that then having the opportunity to you know, join Morgan Stanley to work on Opals and ETFs and to see what ETFs were, because they weren't around when I was working at Greenwich Associates, it just was mirroring up two great ideas, right? It made sense to be indexed and ETFs were simple, transparent, cost efficient, available to all types of investors, was just a meeting of two things that made a lot of sense to me. And um, I feel very lucky and honored to have been able to get in so early. And I guess the other thing that I've really enjoyed um, up until quite recently is I've been able and asked to speak at events around the world. So over the years, I've been to 63 different countries, um, being able to speak at events for regulators and others about why thinking about ETFs makes sense. Um, and so the travel, the ability to meet people, experience different cultures, foods, etc., has been uh, very fulfilling. Um, so I hope at some point... Uh, to be able to go back and do that again. Yeah, well, I guess that makes it all the more strange to be to be largely stuck in one place at the moment. Um, I, uh, I, I'm interested then, uh, so once you leave Greenwich Associates, obviously you mentioned your work at Morgan Stanley and then uh, uh, BlackRock later. I mean, I'm interested to know how you go about convincing an industry you know, used to high fees, uh, used to sort of active involvement in their investment strategies to offer a product that essentially marginalizes their involvement and, and their compensation. I wanted just to, I wanted to get a sense from you kind of how difficult it was to uh, transform the market and the industry's perception. You know, that's a great question. So, um, uh, you know, sitting at Morgan Stanley, primarily it was dealing with institutional investors. So everything from private banks to sovereign wealth funds. What you found was if you were trying to speak to private banks, they would say to me, are you going to pay me rebates or retrocessions? So they did want to be paid because that was the model back in 1997. Um, so I think it was challenging in many cases, unless they did not have a mutual fund where they would get paid that was going to do what they wanted to do. So I think it became a situation of looking for cases where the ETF fulfilled a need that wasn't out there in some other wrapper that was going to pay them. And then over time, as we saw the retail distribution review, which banned independent advisors from being paid to sell products, uh, Dutch RDR, um, changes through MIFID II, financial reform in Australia and other markets, many advisors learned the benefits of ETFs, as we've discussed already, which was, you know, investing in lower cost products that deliver the benchmark as opposed to active ones that don't beat the benchmark and being able to generate alpha through asset allocation. You saw many of these advisors start to use ETFs. And then others decided to actually launch ETFs. So, you know, today we have 
over 430 firms that are actually issuers of ETFs around the world. So many of the people who used to say to me, I'm an active manager, you know, I'll never use these products, have now become issuers of the products or salespeople for firms that issue them or portfolio managers who use them as part of their asset allocation. So there's definitely been a huge shift from the early days when it was very hard to convince many people to even consider using ETFs to today where many see them as an alternative to using individual security selection, active funds, instead of using swaps, instead of using futures. Um, so really the landscape has changed phenomenally from the time when I started. Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. I mean, was there a watershed moment in terms of wide scale ETF adoption, do you think? Well, I think some of it would be when products, so the gold, physically backed gold products, you know, for many people, they didn't have, and you couldn't deliver alpha through kind of something in that landscape. So for many, that was a unique product that caused a lot of people to decide to start investing. For others, it was the retail distribution review, where if they're independent, they could look and should look at the whole of the market. I think for others, it's been the toolbox of products that have become available in the usage wrapper made it much more attractive for investors outside the US to use products that are now here. Because remember, the first product was launched 30 years ago in Canada. The US launched ETFs three years later and ETFs here are only 20 years old. So in the beginning, most people were using products that were domiciled and listed in the US, which are not as tax efficient for most non-US investors. I don't give tax advice, but um, people should take their own. But in general, we've seen that most non-US investors use the USITS products, which can also accumulate where all mutual funds and ETFs in the US have to pay out income at least once a year. And here we have ETFs that list and trade in different currencies and the currency hedge products, there's a much wider array, which is also attractive to many investors outside the US. Yeah, definitely. And I guess as a result of all of that work that you've done across your career, you're now one of the most recognizable faces in the global ETF industry. Do you have a sense that you're a trailblazer or an industry pioneer at all? Well, you know, clearly I've had so many great people I've worked with over the years. So there's, I couldn't have done what I have done without everyone's help. And even today, my team at my company, all the people who are involved with women ETF. So it takes an army to uh, kind of move forward. But I do think latching on and staying with it. I recall back when I was at Morgan Stanley at a time when I worked for um, reported into managing director who wanted me to select only 50 ETFs that I would cover from that point forward because the growth and number of products just meant it was a lot of work. And um, I think had I not stood up and taken a firm stance that covering 50 products and never anything else um, would really be a significant mistake. So I'm glad I kind of held my guns there and uh, carried on. So I think yeah, I've been a trailblazer in many ways, probably, um, but couldn't have done any of it without the help of a lot of people behind the scenes over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and that's been fascinating, actually. And I, I want to move us on to uh, some 
interesting, innovative products that uh, have kind of hit the market in recent years. We've referenced the more standard ETF products, uh, i.e. those that disclose their holdings daily. But I wanted to highlight a more recent innovation, uh, and that being active and, and semi or non-transparent ETFs. Uh, this year, for the first time ever, more active ETFs um, from the research I was doing before the call. Uh, and what I mean by active ETFs is those that buy assets without following an index. Uh, more of those were launched than passive as of the 4th of June. 42 active ETFs have been launched compared to just 35 index trackers. So firstly, I wanted to get your opinion on what's behind this shift. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned those numbers because we would actually see that the numbers were actually a bit higher in terms of because we track how many products have come to market um, new um, globally as well as in the US. So I think there's actually been slightly more active products than the numbers you mentioned. But so what is happening? So Historically, in the US, the requirements to bring out ETFs meant that all ETFs had to provide daily transparency on their underlying portfolio. Mm -hmm. And most portfolio managers who manage active equity products really don't want to disclose to the world their underlying holdings every day. That's basically their secret sauce. Like you don't give away your grandmother's you know, pasta recipe. Yeah. Um, so what you saw was for more than eight years, there were many requests by different asset managers to be able to launch ETFs where they wouldn't disclose the holdings on a daily basis. And the reason they wanted this is when you think about the way mutual funds are managed, they only provide quarterly transparency. So in essence, what these active managers were saying we want to provide quarterly transparency through an ETF wrapper like we do for traditional mutual funds. So there were many different models that were proposed of ways of doing this. I don't particularly like the term non-transparent or semi-transparent because for people who don't know what this means, it sounds like the ETFs are never going to tell you what's inside them. Or if they're semi-transparent, maybe they tell you the top 10 holdings. What it really means is they are disclosing their portfolio holdings at least quarterly. They might be disclosing it more often. So why have we seen new entrants come to market? Well, it's because they've seen the popularity of the ETFs and the ETF wrapper. And so for many advisors and other investors, being able to put in orders to trade everything like you do an ETF, whether it's indexed or active, would be beneficial. It's also true that in the US, if an ETF is compared to a mutual fund, the ETF is more tax efficient because of the in-kind creation redemption process. And so there would be tax efficiency. By doing something in the ETF wrapper, you also save on fund admin and transfer fees so you're lowering the cost of creating the product. And as we talked about earlier, if you're buying lower cost products, that enhances your returns. And so these would be some of the benefits that active managers saw of offering some products as, or some exposures as ETFs, would be it would attract potentially a new set of clients and put them into the category of ETFs, which clearly um, is growing faster in many cases than traditional mutual funds. If you look at the US, it took mutual funds 66 years to reach a trillion dollars. 
it took ETFs in the US only 18 years. So although we are working off of a small base, um, the preference for ETFs has been quite significant um, over the years. So we're seeing new strategies come out. And, um, but it is important. So if you look at Canada, ETFs are regulated like mutual funds. So without requiring any regulatory changes, they have had their own version of non-transparent ETFs for a very long time. And today, about 23% of the assets in Canada are in active ETFs. If you were to look at the global landscape, only about 2.7% of all assets are in active products. And of the active products today, most have been fixed income because in the US, um, fixed income portfolio managers felt comfortable providing that transparency because it's harder for others to copy the investments they make. So I think we're seeing a real shift towards more active equity products and being offered by firms that are well known. So to be successful and active, I think it takes a portfolio manager that people know, the demonstration of being able to manage money, deliver that performance, and a global or at least US focused brand that people know. So very different than when you think about index, because when you think about index, people are really interested in what is the index that's being tracked and not really so concerned about looking at past performance or who is a portfolio manager. Yeah, interesting. And having covered, I guess, why this trend is happening, I wanted to get to the root of the true value of these products for the end consumer. So, I mean, active managers' profit margins, uh, just in terms of a median average, have fallen from 34% in 2015 to 27% in 2019. So, is this trend simply a way for active managers to recoup or thicken their margins, uh, having lost out largely since the industry's shift to more passive investment vehicles since 2008? Or are these products, you know, a truly valuable innovation for the end consumer? do you think? Well, I might rephrase that. I think that what an ETF is, is really a mutual fund wrapper mm -hmm. and inside of it can be whatever you want. So I think we've seen this migration from plain vanilla market cap indices to um, smart beta, which is another term that gets confusing, but basically ETFs that are investing in factors which show over long time periods, there's academic research to show that if you invest in these factors over long time periods, you'll do better than market cap, but there can be multiple years of underperformance. And then all the way to active. So you really see this continuum that the wrapper really works for whatever you want. And so I wouldn't say that it's just about looking for ways to help their margins, I would say that it's really embracing a better wrapper to deliver different returns to investors. And I think that going forward, as we think about the impacts of COVID and work from home, I do believe that digital will become more important in so many aspects of the financial service industry, including whether it's robos or larger firms offering digital solutions where people can go online and buy, I think that the ETF product, the ability to buy or sell anytime during the trading day is a more natural solution 
in that environment than using mutual funds and, or other products. So I think that ETFs will benefit as we see this shift going forward, because um, I do think that it will be unusual to expect that things will go back to exactly as they were before, because for many people the in the sales role where typically they might have gone out and had meetings with fund selectors or portfolio managers or others, um, I think that until we have vaccines and treatments and track and trace um, that works around the world, for many people, they're going to be unwilling to go back into that old way of doing business. So I think many aspects of the financial industry are going to be impacted by this big change that we've seen over the past few months. Yeah, and perhaps that's a, an ideal point then to talk about a group of products that we cover a lot on Opto, uh, which is thematic ETFs. Um, I read that as of the end of Q1 this year, thematic ET, ETF investment in Europe had grown five times in just three years. So it totaled around $8.5 billion. What makes this segment of the industry so popular in your opinion? So I think thematics for many people are an interesting area because people are, especially now, watching the news to see what's happening, right? So, you know, you think about what's happening and you look at which companies might come up with a vaccine or how will certain sectors benefit from the work from home. So, you know, you talk about you know, Zoom or other technologies. So I think people want to think about investing in themes that will benefit from a post-pandemic environment. And that would be one example. I think ESG would be another that for many, you know, diversity, solar energy, clean energy are areas that would be defined as themes in addition to being ESG. And I just think it meets with what investors want to be able to invest in today and delivers a real easy way to identify the companies that are in those buckets. Yeah, definitely. And I wondered then, thinking in themes compared to factors or even individual companies, I suppose, um, thinking in themes is perhaps more intuitive, uh, particularly for the retail investor. What's, what's your take on that? Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, it probably is also more interesting to talk to your friends about, right? So I think to say, hey, I just bought the S&P 500 or the FTSE is um, not exciting, well, I don't know, Zoom drink talks, or if we go back to the pub at some point. Um, so for many, being able to talk about, hey, you know, I really think that disruptive technology is the way to invest. You know, I've just bought an ETF that's investing in Tesla and, you know, some 3D printing and genomics or whatever uh, companies is kind of an interesting talk to have with your friends and colleagues. So I think for many, um, they see the opportunity in these types of investments, they want to participate. And uh, I think the ETF leaves the work of defining the companies to smart professionals and uh, you know allows you to participate. Yeah, interesting. I mean, to this day though, I suppose, uh there's a fair few sort of commentators out there and, and fund managers as well that still regard the sector, and I'm talking about thematics specifically, as, as a bit of a gimmick, I suppose. What, what's your take on that then? Well, I, I do think that anyone who is investing really needs to think about why are you investing, right? So are you investing for retirement? Then you really need to think about 
your tolerance to risk and your time horizon. Um, and I think that's a really different type of investing than investing in themes, right? So I think themes are something that uh, you might have some of your money in, but not all of it. It wouldn't make sense for most people. So I think you have to think about why are you investing and how much of your money. Um, and depending on where you are in your life cycle and tolerance to risk and how much money you have to invest, I think you can put aside different pockets of money for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's actually a small percentage of total ETF investment, as far as I'm aware, but uh, the thematics uh, space is growing rapidly. I mean, do you expect this space to command a much higher proportion of total industry value uh, in, the, in the medium to long term? I do think that we will see more money move into thematics because I think for many, it better represents investing versus going into sectors or industry groups. And so I think many who might have historically looked at those types of ETFs may be migrating towards thematic exposures. But I also think that there's many people who are thinking a bit more about where they might want to invest in Clearly, these ETFs are gaining popularity based on TV shows, mentioning them quite often, the news shows. Um, so I think the awareness of the products is actually growing significantly. And I mean, people do get the sense that, as I mentioned, certain segments of the technology um, industry are going to benefit from the aftermath of this pandemic. Certain segments of the healthcare industry will also benefit and uh, I think they want to be able in many cases to participate in that. Yeah and to get exposure to some of the industries that you mentioned there I think products have uh, at least from my perspective have become far more specific and, and niche to a certain extent I mean I'll, I'll, I'll give an example I suppose so where once a cloud ETF might have sufficed a collaborative working or even a work from home ETF now exists does the increasingly targeted nature of some of these products provide value for the end consumer? Well, I think I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think for most investors, they really need to start by thinking about um, where, the, where and how are they investing? Is it their retirement money? Is it money that they put aside to be able to play in the market? Is it money they're saving to go on holiday at some point, put kids through university? I think depending on your, that answer, and your tolerance to risk, you need to be careful about not putting all your eggs in a very small basket, right? So I think for most people, they should work with some financial professional to understand and think about what are their investment goals and objectives and what are the right ways to be thinking about investing. And maybe it's keeping a pool of money aside if they feel they want to be able to trade and see if they can beat the professionals. Cause you mentioned earlier, you know, the winner's game, it is hard or sorry, the loser's game. It is hard to uh, win when professional investors find it difficult to beat benchmarks. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I wonder then, are there any specific uh, themes or um, I mean, I imagine you might want to refrain from mentioning specific products, but maybe just some specific themes that have kind of stood out to you uh, in recent times? Any that sort of particularly piqued your interest? Um, yeah, I would say the ones around disruptive technology, around healthcare, and clearly I think in general, you know, you do find that companies that are more diverse do tend to perform better. So I think the way ESG indices and products are being developed today are much more robust than the way they used to be, which was just 
saying, okay, I will exclude certain sectors like the SIN sectors. What you find today is by using data to look at the way companies perform on various criteria and then picking the best in class, those companies do tend to perform better than um, standard companies without those screens. And I think over time, I believe that ESG will be ingrained in the way we invest and we will no longer say five years from now even talk about ESG. So I think that's one where I think that's adding a real benefit to investors and rewarding companies for doing the right thing around governance, about sustainability, uh, environmental factors, et cetera. So, I mean, it's hard not to miss the fact that in general, the quality of the air and the environment has improved significantly during lockdown. I mean, you see uh, fish and dolphins in Venice and the water, you can see the bottom. You know, looking out the windows here in London, you can see blue skies and uh, the sun every day, um, or at least most days when it's not raining. Um, so I think people are realizing it is possible to change and help the climate. And I think that's going to be a focus for many people going forward. Yeah, and uh, that, that point about sort of ingraining ETFs within sort of wide-scale uh, investment habits. Uh, it's potentially a slight digression, but better classification and, and with it education for specifically the retail market, again, seem crucial, at least from my perspective, uh, for the sustained wide-scale ETF adoption that we've spoken about. I mean, firstly, does the industry need to do a better job of classifying and categorizing the ETF universe, in your opinion? Well, so I think it's really important to remember. So as I said, um, ETFs are funds with added benefits. In Europe, under the usage regulations, it's very clear what a usage ETF is. So we actually have that in the regulations and products that are usage ETFs have it in their name. So I do think it's very clear what is an ETF, in Europe especially. I do think at times, journalists and commentators and others will call things ETFs that aren't actually ETFs. So I do think there is confusion, but I think um, it's not often driven by the product itself. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's sort of the confusion actually comes from external parties rather than the industry itself. Um, secondly, then, uh, obviously you do a lot of work at ETF GI to sort of further ETF education with all the stats and research that you put out. Is there anything specific that you can talk about? Um, any sort of recent uh, innovations or updates from ETF GI uh, around the education for the wider market in the ETF space? Yeah, so maybe one thing that I did work on a, few, a couple of years back now is um, the CFA um, published a book, the CFA's Comprehensive Guide to ETFs. So you can download that off our website for free. It's a 200 page book and it walks through the various types of ETFs, how to use them. I wrote the last uh, chapter, which is on ETFs in international markets because the beginning bit is on ETFs listed in the US, but I think it's a good primer. We've been doing a TV show called ETF TV for the past nine months. I partnered up with uh, Dan Barnes and Hamish MacArthur, who have been doing other TV shows. Uh, Trader TV would be an example. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. I filmed a segment this morning with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, we have some upcoming webinars that we're offering, which will replace the in-person events we had planned for New York on April 2nd, which clearly was uh, postponed due to COVID. 
and our May 19th event in London was postponed because the hotel actually decided to close their doors for the first time in 122 years. So I think upcoming webinars, the end of July, and um, we've been enhancing our website. So I think our subscription research and database um, tools are very useful for investors and others who want to be able to find and compare products and know what the trends are in the industry. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I mean, that all sounds really interesting. I have checked out ETF TV myself, and uh, I definitely recommend it to our listeners. Um, I want to finish the main body of the interview there and uh, just move on to the final section, which uh, it, which should require no more than a few minutes. It's something we typically do with, with all of our guests, uh, and it's our quick fire question round. So you can answer these questions in as little as one word or one sentence, if you like, and it's uh, essentially just a light-hearted way to finish the interview. Uh, my first question would be, what, in your opinion, is the top mistake investors make? Not reading the prospectus and assuming. So question two, where, where do you go for your investment or business insights? Are there any particular publishers that you could recommend to our readers, for example? That's a great question. Given I'm trying to stay abreast of what's happening around the world, I often look at regulators' websites. I think the accounting firms and law firms put out a lot of interesting information. So I think those would be the main ones that in terms of significant changes for the industry are the ones I would look at. Yeah, sure. So question three then, the most memorable moment from your career today? Um, I think it probably goes back to twice I've been in a 6.5 earthquake, um, once in uh, Japan and once in Taiwan. So I think those always come to mind when I think about things that I didn't expect and had to live through. Yeah, yeah, I imagine those live long in the memory. Um, question four uh, and the penultimate question of this round, top tip for your younger self? Uh, go for it and have faith in yourself. Yeah, that's definitely a trend that we've picked up in uh, a lot of the interviews so far. It's actually having kind of more courage uh, in the early stages of your, your career. So uh, hopefully that's something that uh, sticks and holds true with our listeners. Um, and question five then, what gets you mentally ready uh, for the day? You know, anything about your morning routine that helps you get set up for the day? Yeah, I do try to get up early and try to go for a walk. It used to be before I would have uh, gone to the gym. So I've been going out trying to get at least a three plus mile walk in along the Thames which uh, given the sun is coming up quite early, that's easy to do right now. Yeah, lovely. Lovely starts of the day. Um, well, look, you've been really generous with your time, so I'll end the interview there. But uh, thanks very much, Deborah. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.